If you are a startup looking to grow in Cambridge, the Bradfield Centre offers a range of flexible membership packages which put you in control of your office and home working mix. There's a vibrant, collaborative atmosphere, on-site cafe, plenty of green outside space and regular member social events. For more information, visit bradfieldcentre.com or call 01223 919600. Welcome to the Cambridge Tech Podcast, talking all things technology from the heart of the UK's tech capital. Here are your hosts, Faye Holland and James Parton. Hi, I'm Faye. And I'm James. So Faye, what's been happening in the news this week? Yes, three quick updates this week, James. We talked about it in a previous episode, but now the founders at the University of Cambridge, led by Gerard Gregg, has named its first 100 signatories to mentor the next generation of startups in the cluster. The signatories are made up from industry, advisors, and over half of them are entrepreneurs who have, as they say, been there and done it. As part of the Founders 12-week programme, up to 10 early-stage companies will receive intensive mentoring, connections and seed funding from a pool of up to £2 million, which includes funding from co-investor Parkwalk Advisors. Next, Energy Footsteps Specialist PaveGen, whose crowdfunding exercise we introduced a couple of weeks ago, has this week hit 1.83 million, nearly 200% of their target. And what better way to celebrate than next week putting new installations in London and Paris? So well done to PaveGen. And finally, we saw the reintroduction of the CAMS B2B event hosted by the Cambridgeshire Chambers of Commerce, which brings the support system together and encourages businesses to utilise services and expertise within the local economy. And that's it for the news this week. OK, so let's move on to today's episode. Yes. So today's guest put us in an entirely different technology area around climate tech. So we're going to be looking at things like carbon capture, water harvesting, and I'm sure much more. So we're joined by Aurelia Lee, who is a computational scientist at Immaterial, and also David Farron Jimenez, who is a professor of molecular engineering at the University of Cambridge, specialising in adsorption, molecular simulation and MOFs, which I'm sure we'll better understand by the end of the podcast. I'm sure we will. So we've done some prep for the meeting already. It's definitely, I think, going to be a new topic, as we've said, for both of us. I actually spoke to Aurelia earlier on in the year about coming on the podcast, and I found her own story as how she ended up at Immaterial really interesting. So we'll be talking to Aurelia and David about that too. Welcome, Aurelia and David. It's great to have you with us today. We cover, as you know, a lot of technology on this podcast, but I expect what we're going to be talking about today is going to be very new for a lot of people. So can we start with a little bit of a level set and with you explaining why do we need carbon capture and hydrogen storage? Sure. As you may remember, in 2015, countries from around the world have signed the Paris Agreements that is that legally binds them to limit the increase of temperature globally at less than 1.5 degrees Celsius. And in terms of emissions of greenhouse gases, that means we need to cut them down by half by 2030. 
and then reach net zero by 2050. Now, at the moment, we're still emitting about 40 billion tons of carbon per year. And 30% of these emissions come from what we call hard to abate industries. So these are sectors such as cement, steel, or refineries. So industries that are having a really hard time to decarbonize their process in time because the technologies out there are not mature enough or just prohibitively costly right now. So while there are technologies that will eventually reach the maturity and the scale for these industries to adopt these decarbonizations, the pace at which this is happening just does not match with the urgency of climate action. So this is where carbon capture comes in and plays a vital part as a transition method to mitigate the emissions. So how it works is that to capture the carbons from these emitting industries, you would retrofit a capturing system at the point source of emissions, and you would selectively capture the carbon from the flue gas, for instance, and you would then reuse that carbon for other purposes or store them permanently on the ground. This whole process is called Carbon Capture Utilization and Storage, or CCUS. And these CCUS technologies have now been recognized by the scientific community, the IPCC, and also by governments as a strategic technology in this whole decarbonization journey. Now, in terms of where we are now and where we need to be to reach the goals net zero by 2050, the International Energy Agency has this scenario, which lays out all the technologies that we need to develop and scale to achieve our goals. And according to them, in terms of CCUS technologies, we need to be able to capture 1 to 1.2 billion tons of carbon per year by 2030. Now, as of July 2023, there were about 40 commercial facilities worldwide that had a combined capture capacity of 45 million tons of carbon. So there's been a lot of effort made, but we still have a lot of work to do. The good news is that now that it's been recognized as a key technology, there's loads of incentives from governments that will push companies to speed up decarbonization. Uh, for instance, there's the US Inflation Reduction Act, which provides really interesting tax credits that will incentivize companies to actually cut their emissions using technologies such as CCUS. And in terms of technologies that are already out there, uh, the most mature one is what we call solvent scrubbing. So it's basically a way of chemically binding the molecules of carbon dioxide to a solvent that is usually a mix of amines and water. And it's very efficient at capturing carbon. The problem is it's so efficient, the solvent likes the carbon dioxide so much that it's very hard to regenerate the carbon afterwards. And so it's very energy intensive. And so this is where we think we're using our porous materials, we can offer a solution that is a bit less energy intensive. So that's why we are looking at carbon capture and why it's important. Now, there's also hydrogen storage that we work on. So hydrogen is a very versatile energy carrier. Uh, in fact, it holds the largest amount of energy per mass of any fuel. And it's very promising. Uh, it can produce electricity, it can heat homes and businesses. And very importantly, it can also mitigate a lot of these carbon emissions from the same hard to abate industries and also the transportation sectors. And the 
figures vary a bit between different scenarios, but it's expected that the global demand for hydrogen will represent somewhere between 12 and 22% of the total energy mix by 2050. Now, in what we call this hydrogen value chain, there are three big elements. There's hydrogen production, hydrogen storage and distribution, and hydrogen use. And there are hurdles across the entire value chain that make it still a big challenge to you know, switch complete to hydrogen. And we focus now on hydrogen storage. Uh, it can be stationary storage. So imagine you produce the hydrogen from an electrolyzer and now you need to put it somewhere. And that's important to ensure continuous supply of energy, for instance, if there's seasonal variations in demand. And there's also what we call portable hydrogen storage, which is where if we want to uh, enable fuel cell powered vehicles, for instance, you need to store enough hydrogen on your vehicle to enable an interesting drive range. Now, a main pain point in hydrogen storage is that although it can store a lot of energy per mass, it actually stores very low energy per volume, which means that to store the required amount of energy, you need a lot of space. So all the current technologies in hydrogen storage are looking to increase this energy density. And there are several ways to do that. So you can compress the hydrogen at very high pressures, which is very energy intensive. You can store the hydrogen as a liquid at very low temperatures, around 20 Kelvin, that's minus 253 degrees Celsius. So it's energy intensive. You can chemically bind hydrogen to liquid organic carriers, such as ammonia or solids like metal hydrides, but then you also need to generate hydrogen and it's a complex system to manage. And you also have porous materials, which is where we work in. And we believe that we can come up with a solution that is less energy intensive and can bring down the costs and offer a better techno-economics in general. That's a fantastic introduction into, into a space that, you know, I certainly didn't know know a lot about. So thank you for that. I think it's very important to really recognize uh, the use of uh, fossil fuels that we started in the, in the 18th century as a cheap way, easy way to get uh, energy for the Industrial Revolution. And, and we started using coal, which was uh, a solid, so easy to handle, high concentration, high density, as Aurelia said, when talking about the hydrogen. Then in the 19th century, we started moving into oil industry, uh, also very important in the 20th century and today. And in the 20th century, we started paying attention to natural gas. Now we are discussing this future economy of hydrogen. The translation from a solid into a liquid and to a gas it has different challenges. And for carbon capture and hydrogen storage, at the end of the day, everything is related with the density of these gases. So CO2, we may have high or low concentrations, but the density that they take is, I mean, the density is always very, very low. And with hydrogen, it's exactly the same problem. Gravimetrically, so per, per unit of mass, this is an amazing energy vector. But at the end of the day, the, the density is so low that you need to concentrate this. And that, that's the key element that we are trying to to solve okay a great primer there a great scene setter let's let's take a little look then at the actual you know the role that immaterial plays in solving these challenges so can you explain to us you know the areas of technology you're working on and the kind of use cases for those Yes, so we created Immaterial, a company that started in 2015, uh, started really accelerating in 2018. And, and today we have a very good team of people between engineers, scientists, uh, doing synthesis of materials and, and, and finding new materials for some of the problems that Aurelia mentioned before. 
we decided to focus on the low-hanging fruits and the big markets for uh, these porous materials that we are working with. Okay, We work with a specific family of materials called metal organic frameworks or MOVs. These metal organic frameworks are really, really interesting structures because it's like playing with a molecular Lego, if you want to. Okay, It's like a construction game where you have metal spheres, metal clusters, and you have organic molecules that you can really interconnect between these metals. And just by choosing the building blocks, you can really decide how big the porosity is going to be. You can decide what is the, the chemistry that is included in these organic ligands. You can really decide if you want to go for very high pore volumes, for example, or you really want to have something which is very, very narrow porosity that will be critical for this carbon capture application. Okay, These porous materials could be extremely selective for CO2, but not for nitrogen or water or they could be extremely porous for molecules like hydrogen, so we can really encapsulate many, many molecules inside the porosity. So we focus on the work with these metal-organic frameworks, okay? and the purpose of immaterial is really to have this commercialization. These materials have been in the lab for at least 20, 25 years. They were uh, developed by different groups. Uh, it's Professor Omar Yagi. Uh, he was the first one to coin the term metal-organic frameworks. But at the same time, there was other people like uh, Professor Kitagawa in Japan, uh, Gerard Ferre in France, a uh, lot of different academics really working around these areas. There has been a huge interest from industry since very early on, in particular with BASF. But uh, they had some important limitations, and within material, we are really trying to solve all these problems they found before us, and really, really making sure we have these materials made a reality. I've read somewhere um, that some of these moths, they're not very stable. Is that why it's been in the lab being worked on for 20 years? You know, is that an issue, first of all, and how do you overcome that? That's a very good question. One of the first questions, how many mobs exist? Okay, And this is something that uh, Aurelia can expand because he was working on this. We have more than 100,000 different metal-organic frameworks. The first materials, they were not particularly stable, chemically stable. And yeah, that was one of the reasons of why these materials failed to really find their place in, in industry. But the second problem is, once you are able to scale up the synthesis of these materials and you can produce them on ton scale, one of the key problems that uh, people found was that it's very difficult to densify the materials. Okay, I, I go back to the idea of the density. So you obtain a powder, for example, and the powder is something you cannot use in industry. You really need to pelletize this. And this is something that seems to be very trivial, something that is, seems to be easy to solve. But with these materials, they are so porous. We have thousands of square meters in a single gram of material. They are so porous, so open porosity, that as soon as you apply mechanical pressure, if you are not careful, you will destroy the porosity of the materials. And this is something that the academic side has ignored for many, many years. But as soon as industry tries to pelletize these materials and apply these uh, high mechanical pressures to really conform something that you can really use in industry, they either collapse the porosity or they were not able to densify the materials as much as possible. And this is something that within material we are able to solve. 
Did that cause an issue in industry? Did they say, well, this isn't going to be a solution that works for us? And do you then have to overcome that when you're going out to talk to them now? So for many, 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 many uh, years, when we started talking with industry, uh, there was always people that said, well, you know, BASF tried this many, many years ago. They failed. It's not going to work. Okay. These materials are not stable. They are too expensive. They don't offer any 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 advantage compared with existing technologies, and this is something that obviously we need to battle a little bit. We need to 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 make sure we really have all the data to really demonstrate, hey, these materials are working. We are able to do what we claim. So where are you on that timeline? Because I'm guessing, as you're building your company, you have to deliver proof points and build confidence in your solution to raise funds and you know find customers. So Give us a flavor of like where you are on that timeline of getting to that breakthrough. Yeah, when we started with the company uh, in 2015, it was, uh, okay, we have an excellent porous material. Looks really nice as an academic idea, but uh, can we really make a company out of this? Okay, is this something that is interesting enough for, for industry to commercialize this? We were exploring different applications. That was particularly in 2018 when we started scaling up the material and also the the. The first time we found these monolithic structures, these monolithic metal-organic frameworks, which is exactly what immaterial is doing, and we can talk about this later. When we created these monolithic materials, we didn't know if this was for one move or for many moves. Is this a universal technology? Is this just for a couple of materials that we found in the lab? So that was the first concern. The second one was really looking for these final applications. What are the markets we really want to address? And now it's very clear, yes, we want to go for carbon capture and hydrogen storage, it wasn't clear a few years ago. So this has been a little bit part of the trip, okay? Uh, in particular, the, the company started accelerating quite a lot in the last uh, year and a half or so. We have now closed the Series A investment round this summer. And we have now a lot of companies that are really, really supporting us now, uh, helping us to really demonstrate our capabilities. In this past couple of years, we have been able to scale up the synthesis from the milligrams that we had in the lab to multi-kilogram production per day. And we are also now creating prototypes for the hydrogen storage and carbon capture design that we need to demonstrate. Do you have a, a view on how far away you are with, say, like a pilot with a potential customer? So we are we are designing a pilot plan for the manufacturing of the materials. This okay. is something that we are going to build in the UK. It's going to be a pilot plan with multi-tone production demonstration. This is something that we want to start implementing in next year, 2024. Okay, by the end of 2024, this is something we really want to start building. But we started with the design uh, this year. We are also uh, designing the prototypes demonstrators for carbon capture and hydrogen storage and we really expect this to, to take place in the next two or three years so we will be able to have multi-tone production but also the, the the prototypes in place so earlier can we pick up on the moth topic in itself so you've gone from a hundred thousand and still researching the the relevant possibilities there what was your role in that work how did it all come about so as David explained a little bit earlier, so MOFs are these structures that you assemble from two types of building blocks, and you can play with them a bit like when you play with Lego blocks. So you have one type of blocks that we call metal clusters, and the other one that we call organic ligands. And you put them together, and they form a kind of structure that is very orderly and crystalline. 
And if you want to imagine it, it can imagine a scaffold or scaffolding around a building. And we have the metal clusters that join the different ligands. And so what is very exciting about these materials is that there's a variety of building blocks that you can imagine and come up with. And then you have to combine these two to form a structure. And so you can just imagine the number of combination that is possible is just endless. And so when I first joined David's lab, the project was to quantify the number of MOFs that have been made already in the world. And so that was my master's research project at first. And the answer to that question was is around 100,000 structures today, which includes structures that are very similar or identical, but the order of magnitude is there. So once we have this 100,000 structures, the next question is, okay, what do I do with knowing that there's 100,000 structures? How do I look through them? And this is where there's a workflow that uh, we use in computational chemistry, uh, specifically for MOFs, that we call computational high-throughput screening. So basically with each structure, we have tools, molecular simulation tools that enable us to calculate the amount of carbon or hydrogen, for instance, that we can absorb in one material. And so what this workflow does is that we repeat the same procedure, but throughout this entire data set of 100,000 structures, for instance. And these are tools that, well, with the recent computational power that we have access to, uh, these are things that are very quick and easy. And so we can screen a huge data set of MOFs in a few days, maybe a few weeks tops, and we can decide, okay, these structures seem to be the best performing structures. And that's how we cut down from, you know, starting from 100,000 structures to just a handful. And then once we are here, we there are other questions to answer is, you know, can we synthesize them in a lab? Is it cheap enough to do it? Is it easy to source all the reagents? So other questions that come in, but this is the general workflow that we use. And this is uh, one of the main dry lab capabilities that we have at Immaterial. And I, I believe that one of the moths that's, that's showing the most promise was an accidental discovery. Is that right? So this is more related with the with the synthesis of these monolithic metal organic frameworks. So Aurelia describes all these thousands of possibilities of materials. Then it's related about the question of okay, how are you going to synthesize these materials? The, the, the first PhD student that was working in my in my group that was probably a little bit before Aurelia you joined the lab. So he was working on a completely different project. He was working on the synthesis of a specific metal organic framework. One day, he forgot a sample in in his vents. He didn't put the sample in the oven. Generally, it was the synthesis of the material and then putting this inside the oven to evaporate and remove all the solvent. And, and then the next day, he has a powder and he continued working, doing more characterization, testing, and so on. So one day, he, he forgets, uh, he forgot this, this sample. And what he found is that he doesn't have a powder, but a chunk of let's say, one cubic centimeter of a material that looks transparent. So instead of a white powder, it's a very beautiful material, completely transparent. So he doesn't know what is this. Uh, instead of throwing this away, as we know many people did in the past, because we, we have been talking with different labs and they had similar experiences, he came to see me, he came to my office and said, David, I found this material, what is this? I was like, well, Tian Tian, that's his name. I have no idea what is this. He said, well, is the material I was looking for, is, is the MOF I was looking for. I was like, okay, this doesn't look the same. It looks like a glassy structure because it's transparent. So glassy means amorphous. 
uh, I mean, all these moves are crystalline structures. Okay, every single building block is in the place you are expecting for this. It's not transparent. It's sometimes it's white, sometimes has different colors depending on the metals, but not transparent. It was the first time we saw something like that. And then I said, well, Tian, have you checked the material is porous? I say, no, okay. So that's the first thing. If you have been able to save the porosity of the material and you have all these thousands of square meters per gram, then I said, if, if this is porous, you have done something really, really interesting. And he said, why? Okay, I have no idea. And I said, well, the material is transparent. That's the key element. Okay, so we know, and this goes a little bit more technical, if the material is transparent, this means that the light is not getting scattered. Okay, so if you see the clouds in the in the sky, they are white because the light from the sun gets scattered in all the directions and then it's simply white. Okay, with a piece of glass that we have in the window is transparent because the glass is not interacting with this. Okay, the only reason why the material is transparent is because it's very dense. The light is not seeing any objects in its pathway through the material because like in the glass, everything is very, very compact. Every has been densified. If you take a piece of glass and you smash this and you ground this completely, you will get a white powder. That's exactly the same with the moths. So it's not an amorphous moth. It's completely crystalline and all the porosity was there, but the material was extremely dense. And I said, Tian, this is a big problem that nobody in science has been able to solve in the past. Not too many people recognize this as a problem because not too many people were aware about this problem. But we know that densification of this metal organic framework is very, very difficult. As I said at the beginning, if you apply high mechanical pressure, you will collapse the structure. You will destroy the porosity. But you have been able to obtain these highly dense structures without applying any mechanical pressure. And that's carried forward into the company. And we had uh, the first patent, yeah. we filed the first patent, uh, we protected all these. And this is what I said, the first time it was one single metal organic framework. After a couple of years, we found that that was very, very universal. Not for one move, it was for any move that we have tried so far. And all this has been translated into the company. And this is the, mm. the, the real commercialization vehicle for the research done in the academic group. I love it. It's great. I mean, what, what a fantastic story. So he's like, oh, no, I've made a mistake. Oh, no, I'm a hero. <laughs> it's great. Absolutely great. So actually staying there with, with the lab, the team, let's, let's move the conversation over a little bit and talk about your backgrounds and how you came into these, these positions. So Aurelia, you did the, your PhD, as you've just said, in Cambridge. You've done that research. You were part of David's group. Was it then just going to be a natural fit? Were you, were you just going to get dragged into a material or what? How, do, how did that actually come about? It does seem pretty linear. And I think Davina has been very good at dragging me into everything. But it's been with uh, lots of pleasure to join this <laughs> whole journey. Do you have to say that because he's sat next to you? No, I, I say that uh, behind him as well. <laughs> Yeah, so it's an interesting question because term has just started at university and so Facebook keeps sending me these memories of eight years ago when I first came to Cambridge and I thought I was going to stay here for just a year for my master's and then, you know, seven years later I'm still here. And it seems very linear and organic. It is organic, but I think, yeah, as I said, David has been very good along the way of making me change direction and you know, make me end up in, in this place where I am now. 
I was in Paris initially, where I was doing general engineering, which is a very French concept. I don't think it exists anywhere else. General engineers are people who have a strong theoretical background, mostly in math, physics, and chemistry and biology, if you chose these subjects as well. And you're exposed to a range of STEM and non-STEM topics. So anything from quantum physics to mechanical engineering to corporate finance, philosophy of science, for instance. And I chose this path initially because I just enjoy very much learning about a wide range of topics. And also in France, it's a very safe and standard way of keeping all your options open at the end of your studies and also ensuring that you can get a job easily afterwards. So as part of this general engineering programs, I had the opportunity to specialize in my final years and I had the opportunity to apply to a master's in Cambridge. And at the time, my favorite STEM topic was chemistry, mostly because I think molecules are beautiful and fun. <laughs> and I take a lot of pleasure in just looking at molecules or drawing them. And also had great chemistry teachers. So I was considering doing a master in chemistry, but at the time I didn't want to pursue science any further. I wanted to go to the industry. And I was worried that doing a master's in chemistry would lock me up in academia, which was my big fear at the time. <laughs> and very ironic now when you look at it. <laughs> And so I applied for a master's in chemical engineering here in Cambridge, and I got in. And at the end of this one-year program, there was this research project that we had to carry out with one of the research groups in the department where David is. And so we had a list of available topics, and I went around talking to different supervisors. And that's where I met Payman, who was a postdoc in David's lab, and who's now a professor at UCL. And so he was studying MOFs from a computational perspective. And he told me a bit about what MOFs are, showed me some structures, and they were really beautiful because, as I said, I really enjoy chemistry because I think the molecules look beautiful. And this is like the pinnacle of beauty in chemistry, I think, because they, these structures have these just very regular patterns that kind of remind you of tile patterns you can find in Spain or Portugal, for instance. At least that's how I see them. And the project was about, you know, uh, building a data set of MOFs that we can work with. And I don't think I really grasped the impact of this project back then, but he told me something along the lines of, if you do this project, you probably have to see a lot of these structures. And I was like, oh yeah, that sounds amazing. And then that's, that's how I got into the MOF field initially. And then I built a data set, it worked well, I wrote my thesis, and it ended up being published in a very good journal and had a lot of traction, still has loads of citations now, which is way beyond all my expectations. And then David and Payman were very keen on keeping me as a PhD student. But again, at the time, I just wanted to go into the industry. So I left. And then once I left, I realized that a lot of the things I had in Cambridge, I really value. And these things make me happy in my day-to-day -day life. So for instance, I mean, in Cambridge, I met so many super interesting people from all over the world who were very motivated and very open-minded. So I felt very well surrounded. And I also had the chance to work on a research project where I was owning my own project, where I could decide how to do it, you know, what question really I want to answer and just steer the, the project. So these are things that were missing when I left Cambridge. 
And I came back for my graduation and I talked with David and Payman again, mostly to say thank you, hi, I'm graduating. <laughs> and this topic came up again, the topic of the PhD. And this time I was like, well, you know, I might consider it this time. And it was, I think, now the best decision of my life up to now. I don't know what else is going to happen in the future. But yeah, I had an amazing time during my PhD. And all the fears that I had before my PhD, well, like most of them, I think, are gone now. I was very worried about, you know, not being able to find a job in the industry or just coming out of it and being very old and depressed. <laughs> but it, it all turned out okay. And um, during my PhD, I was thinking of what to do next. And I really wanted to stay in a, an environment where, you know, we're a small team, everyone has a big impact. And so I was thinking of the whole startup ecosystem because I thought that could be the right place for me. And David, as timely as he always is, <laughs> popped up at this time and to ask me, oh, you know, would you be interested in joining Immaterial? And it just made a lot of sense to me because I thought, well, you know, I'm working on a very niche topic and this is the place where I can actually apply my niche knowledge and also leverage my generalist training in the background. And I wanted to be in a startup. So I'm from our side. We, we, we were looking for funding for the PhD to really start the whole, uh, because Aurelia did a, a, a fantastic MPhil uh, on, this, on this idea with the data set. And it was, okay, no, no, no question. We need to find funding for her. We started looking for different sources and yeah, we managed to, to continue with the PhD and finally with the company, which is fantastic. And David, you, you've got a decade at the University of Cambridge in molecular engineering, but you're not just the founder and president of Immaterial, you're also performing the same role for a slightly younger startup, Vector Bioscience. So <laughs> how do you fit all of this in? How do you balance being an academic, you know, running two startups? What's your secret? <laughs> so so the, 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 the real secret is not secret. You need to have an amazing team. Without the team, it's impossible to handle all this. So in the academic group, for example, you need to have uh, amazing PhD students, amazing postdocs. In the case of Aurelia, even MPhil students could be fantastic. This is really unique in, in Cambridge. I mean, that's the beauty of being able to have people with a lot of good ideas, a lot of energy to really create amazing science. And with the companies, it's the same. It's, it's, it's not me. <laughs> it's really having an amazing team of people who is really coordinating activities, moving ideas, uh, developing, finding new solutions, materials, problems. This is this is the, the, the reality. The work in the academic group really extends into the companies. And, and for me, this has been always important because I don't want to just do academic work. I mean, I, I'm a chemist, so I can do fundamental work and I really like fundamental science. But at the same time, because I'm working in a department of chemical engineering and biotechnology, I really want to see a real impact of the work we do in the society. Okay, Can we really have something that can fight this global warming? Okay, How can we really contribute into that? I don't want to just write a paper and then sit down and wait for someone to take these ideas. I mean, if we are experts in these ideas that we are proposing, why shouldn't we really develop them and commercialize these, these ideas? With vector bioscience in particular, it's the same. It's working with metal-organic frameworks, but not for energy applications, but for cancer applications. How can we really have better drug delivery structures? Okay, How can we really minimize side effects in cancer? How can we really have more effective therapies? And how can we make another impact, very important impact, into the society? And are you spinning these companies through Cambridge Enterprise? 
So we work with Cambridge Enterprise. I always say the, the, the beauty of also Cambridge, Cambridge Enterprise is a lot about the, the freedom you really have to operate. Not everybody involved in the patents, for example, that we file through, from the university are finally involved in the companies, okay? Some people, I insist, and they, they want to continue working in academia. So it's, it's, not, it's not like Aurelia. They really want to work over there and, and, they, and they decide to stay. Opting in, working with Cambridge Enterprise, a little bit of solve some of these problems. We are also part of the university, so I think it's a, obviously the, the right thing to do. Yeah, and no, there's some great insight there, I think, in terms of what it's like within the university and having that entrepreneurial spirit to make the impact as you describe. And, you know, as you were saying, you had the freedom and the ownership to really take the research in a direction you wanted to. So I think learning's there for people that are listening that aren't at University of Cambridge. It takes time. Yeah. And, and there are different mechanisms. I mean, we, 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 we are also very lucky for all the support we have from, I mean, even business angels that we have. So the, the support we got with the companies, this is really, really unique. And this is what really makes a big difference. And uh, in, in material that now is a much more mature company with 25 people working over there. I mean, just the people who is really, even at the board level, advisors uh, and the management, it's, it's very senior. They have a lot of knowledge about how to move these ideas. And this is great because otherwise it's impossible. And as you've said, it's a huge challenge that you're addressing that whole impact um, I think is, is really important isn't it so what next what, what what do you think we should be watching out for from you I think within material is really making sure we have uh, I mean we had all this CDC investment the race to really materialize all the advances and really being able to so that we are able to to do what we are promising as soon as we create these prototypes uh, yeah sky is the limit so Looking forward for that. Brilliant. Um, thank you so much, both of you, for your time today. I think everyone will have learned something for sure listening to you today. So thank you very much. Thank you, thank very, you very much. Today's show was produced by Carl Homer of Cambridge TV and supported by our media partner, Business Weekly. The Cambridge Tech Podcast is available on all major podcast platforms and on cambridgetechpodcast.com. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please give it a five-star review. It will really help others discover the show. Cambridge Acorn Project is a local charity providing life-changing support to children and their families who've experienced trauma and abuse and are living in poverty. There's been a huge increase in demand for our services and we're asking local people and organisations to support our work, giving more families the chance to emotionally recover from trauma and abuse. To find out more, please visit cambridgeacornproject.org.uk.